So in Malachi 3.1, there is a question that God is addressing, and it's asked at the very end of chapter 2. Take a peek. Here's what's going on. 17, 2.17 says, You've wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or... They say, where is the God of justice? Now, this verse was our last verse last time. And I had mentioned to you just quickly in passing that this is certainly a question that many people have. Where is God in this or that? Or where is the God of justice? Because when things don't go in a, in a direction where we would all like to see them go, whether it be you know, the direction of our country morally, whether it be an election, whether it be a moral issue of our time where our courts go a different direction than we would hope. We, we sometimes ask questions like this, where is God? And then when we have personal things happen to us and we go through difficulty and unexplained things, both non-Christians might say, well, where is God in that? But let's face it, Christians say that as well, Right? We sometimes say, God, why does it seem like the wicked get away with stuff and the righteous suffer? Job had those questions. The psalmist had those questions. Sometimes we pray about something for a long, long time, and it doesn't come to pass, and we think what we're praying for is good. And we might even say, I think I'm praying according to God's will. Why is it that that person over there is doing so well or that person got the promotion and I didn't and I'm living a godly life and I'm seeking first the kingdom of God? And you could fill in the blanks with a lot of different areas where we might say, where is God? And more than that, they were saying something like this. It seems like God is just simply winking at evil. In fact, they were saying something like this. It seems like he is pleased Look at the end of 17, chapter 2. That he delights in them, in the people that are doing evil. It seems like he delights in them. Now, we would all say that's blasphemy. God doesn't delight in evil. He's good, and he wants what is good and right. But sometimes life circumstances certainly you know, look that way. And the Bible is not afraid of honest questions, you know? Um, we, we've got to be careful of what we say and how we say it, but we've watched people in biblical revelation wrestle with all kinds of stuff. So what is the answer to this question? Where is God? Where is the God of justice? When will justice be realized, they might say. Now remember, we are dealing with a time frame that's somewhere around 400 B.C., so they have come back from that Babylonian captivity, and they're probably about a year uh, removed from when they first returned. And remember, only about 5% of the Jewish population returned to the promised land. Everybody else stayed in Babylon. They became comfortable. They just stayed there. And so the people were, uh, there was a lot of foreigners around. There was a lot of negative influences around. And the people would just kind of had lost heart. They, their worship was half-hearted. They were bringing to God their second, third, and last best. And things did, just didn't look good in Israel. And the remnant, I think, is speaking here. And the remnant, that would be the faithful remaining believers were saying something like this. God, where are you? And, and there is certainly no doubt that in the time that we live in, we've probably asked that question maybe out loud. Maybe we've voiced it in our heart. Where are you, Lord? 
when are you going to make things right? And just know this. It's not a question of if with God. It's just a question of when. And the when in Malachi, what God is about to do in the sending of the messenger and the Messiah, which we'll read about in a second, was going to happen 400 years after this is recorded. You could say it this way. After this question goes up to heaven, where is God? It took four centuries for the next verse to be realized in the coming of John the Baptist and in the coming of the Messiah. Notice what it says. Behold, look, instead of, you know, staying stuck in the question of where is God, look, look elsewhere. We might say, look up. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Nate, I've got a little bit of an echo. Nathan, a little bit of an echo. Um, if you don't mind, maybe just turning me down a little bit. Thank you. So all of a sudden, the attention goes to this messenger. All four gospels have this. All four gospels are quoting a combination of Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40, verse 3. And the messenger of the or the messenger of the Messiah to announce the Messiah is no doubt John the Baptist. And we will talk about the Messiah in a second. But the response of the Lord to the question of where is the God of justice? At the time when you could say that maybe the nation had hit the lowest point, things looked so dark, God says, Behold, I want you to look because I am sending the solution. We see this many times in the book of Isaiah. If you study Isaiah, you will see that the moment that things seem to get the darkest for the nation is when then God gave a prophecy about the coming of Emmanuel or the coming of the suffering servant. And this is exactly what happens here. But he was still four centuries away. And I will tell you that as hard as we pray and as much as we want to see things made right, God's timing will be God's timing. And he knows the generation we live in. He knows the times and the seasons he's placed us, the geographic location in which we live for such a time as this. And we can always live with hope because the Messiah is coming a second time. And we'll talk about that in a second. But you will see that the Messiah is going to arrive. I believe he's mentioned here uh, in the Messenger of the Covenant. But notice, just so you can see it one more time, the Lord whom you seek, look at the middle of verse 1, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, I, I believe that's the new covenant that Jesus brought, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, all four gospels would point to the messenger of the covenant as being John the Baptist. The question of which coming is being discussed before us is a question that I will lay out and we'll let it linger just for a second. But just write this down. Mark 1, verse, verses 1 through 3 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written uh, in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, very similar language to Malachi 3.1, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. 
Now, John the Baptist was the messenger of the Messiah. Malachi's name means messenger. But literally, John came and said, I'm preparing you with a baptism of repentance to get your hearts ready for the Messiah. And we all know that when the Messiah came at the first advent that we just celebrated, one of the first things he did when he arrived in the temple area, do you remember what he did? He cleansed the temple. He turned over the tables of the money changers. He uh, basically said, you are making this house a robber's den. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So when Jesus came the first time, it's, it's hard not to think about the fact that he came to the temple almost what would seem suddenly. John the Baptist had come and told the people to prepare ye the way of the Lord, and he baptized, them with a, he baptized them with a baptism of, you could call it preparation, to get their hearts ready. And then when Jesus came walking up to the Jordan, John says, there he is, behold, same word, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the people began to flock to Jesus, as we know, and move away from John. Now that's attempting, uh, the scene at the temple is attempting one to think that maybe it's talking about that. But here is where we think we're getting into the second coming. Notice verse two. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like refiner, a refiner's fire, like New King James launderer's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Now, what coming is this talking about? Who can endure the day of his coming? Well, I don't think this is talking about the first coming. I think this is talking about a second coming. But I will tell you that there's another group here that hold to a view that this, these verses have to do with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And these would be some of our all-millennial friends who believe that much of what's written in Jesus' words about the, the end of the age and the book of Revelation is all fulfilled in the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. That the Lord did come suddenly to his temple, but came in judgment through the Roman armies, like he had done through Assyria in the past and Babylon in the past. And just so you're aware, this is where they get some of their view. That's not my view, but I will tell you that there's some merit to some of the things that they see in Scripture. But I will tell you this. Who can endure the day of his coming is actually a phrase in Revelation chapter 6. So let's go over there. Last book of the Bible. Revelation. So as the seven seals are unfolding in the book of Revelation, which are recorded in Revelation, uh, beginning in Revelation 6.1, here's what it says, and this is related to the breaking of the sixth seal. So let's skip down to verse 12. Revelation 6.12 says, I looked, and when he, the Lamb, had broken the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. The whole moon became like blood. This is where we get the concept of a blood moon. Revelation 6.13. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs, when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up 
and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Now, I do not believe that you can make a case that this has happened yet, right? I mean, this language, this powerful language, is some, some people might say, well, it's symbolic uh, language to some degree, but I, I think we, we see some clear things that are happening. And the kings of the earth, 15, and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And here's the the phrase. And who is able to stand or who can endure the day of his coming? Now, this is why I think many, many Bible scholars would place Malachi 3, 2 and 3 at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the unbelieving world is going to be doing is rejecting the Lord and buying into whatever the propaganda is of that day of the Antichrist and so forth. And the Lord will suddenly appear and his glory will be seen by an unbelieving world as the natural lights go out, and they will mourn as they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. So if the fall of Jerusalem pictures the day of the Lord, and I think it does, the ultimate day of the Lord is still in our future, and it is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, because his first coming, let's think about it theologically, just flip back to Malachi for a second. The first coming was about what? He came on a saving mission. He did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. But his second coming is for what purpose? It's largely for judgment. We believe he's going to rescue his people, but he's going to judge the world in righteousness. And so when he comes, there's obviously going to be a judgment, but there's also going to be a refining. And uh, this, many, of of course, have applied this because of the direct uh, application to the people of Israel, to them specifically. And so he comes, and when he comes, he's going to purify. Notice some of the language in verses 2 and 3. He'll be a refiner's fire. He'll be like launderer's soap. He'll be like a smelter. Whenever you see the word like, it's similes, giving you kind of a comparison. As a purifier of silver, he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. When he comes, he's going to scrape away the dross. When a silversmith wants to purify the metal, he puts it in a red hot fire and he scrapes away the dross until he gets the vessel that he wants. And it's been often said that the silversmith knows that he's done with the process of scraping away the dross when he can see his own reflection in the vessel. And so this is going to be a time of heavy refining in Israel. This is going to be a time of judgment for the world. Uh, This is what John the Baptist, the messenger, said to the people of his day. Don't suppose that you can say to yourselves, we, are, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But one is coming after me who is mightier than I. I'm not fit to remove the sandals of his feet. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Matthew 3, 9 through 12. And so when the Lord Jesus comes, he will baptize with a baptism of fire. In, in a good sense, that could be the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But in another sense, if you do a little homework on Matthew 3, you will see that scholars will say that they believe that the baptism by fire has the meaning of the separation of true believers from false believers and the, the ultimate meaning of fire being judgment. There's a baptism coming of fire. When will it come? At the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he returns in flaming fire with all of his holy angels. Now, the first time he came, he came on a saving mission. His second coming will be for judgment. The nations will appear before him, Matthew 25, and he will separate them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, right? We see that at the, the end time kind of pictures. And then it says, Then the offering, Malachi 3, 4, of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant or pleasing to the Lord. It will be a sweet aroma is the idea of the language. As in the days of old, perhaps the days of Abraham or David and Solomon, as in former years, proper worship instead of half-hearted worship will be one of the consequences that follow the judgment. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness. If you're wondering where's the God of justice, here he is. Drawing near for justice I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers. That speaks of those who mess with the occult and even uh, use potions and drugs. Against the adulterers, those are, that's a mention of uh, earlier in the book when they were leaving their wives and sleeping with foreign women. Against those who swear falsely, that's to bear false witness, that's all, the liars. And against those who oppress the wage earner, hold back wages, we see in the book of James, and who do not treat properly the widow who is near to the heart of the Lord and the orphan, which is also near to the heart of the Lord, and those who turn aside the alien or the foreigner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. You want to know who's going to be judged? People who won't repent of idolatry and sorcery, adultery, lying, and oppression. Now, these are not exhaustive categories, but these are certainly categories that we're all familiar with. And when some of these are overt sins that we know, they're kind of no-duh to us. But others, like oppressing a wage earner. Uh, someone works for a company and worked hard for a paycheck, and, and the boss plays games with them or holds it back. They were doing this in the first century. The, the rich could hold back a paycheck from a poor man and when the poor man tried to make an appeal, he knew that if he went to court, the rich man had so much power that he couldn't even win against him. And he would have to spend money to try to, you know, get help to just get his paycheck. I could talk to you for the next hour about unfair business practices and things happening in our nation where decisions are made in rooms that don't necessarily represent 
business owners and people who are blue-collar workers in this country, and the ripple effect has been tragic in the last two years, where people will make decisions and hardworking people will be put up against the wall. And for what? I'm going to talk for a minute about what's going on with the virus because I think we need to. Right now, I know the Omicron variant of the virus is sweeping through uh, the world. And I think just about everybody in Corona has had Omicron <laughs> from, what I, from what I understand. And for the most part, it has been like a common cold for the most part. Some people more severe. And I want to be careful to tell you that I know some people have gotten really sick and some people have lost their lives uh, to this virus. So I want to be careful here in my comments. But I just want to say that this variant, I've heard at least five different doctors say, and these would be respected epidemiologists say, that Omicron might be a blessing in disguise. Because so many people are getting it. It's very contagious, but less virulent. And so what's happening is it's going to build up natural immunity for the mass population. And these doctors, if they're right, are saying that basically, uh, hopefully after this, because so much natural immunity will exist among the population, that it will put COVID into basically a flu category. That would be such a welcomed blessing. And I do pray for all of those who are in positions of authority, if they truly believe in science, that they will follow the science. Because science, just so you know, literally means knowledge. Science just simply means knowledge. So wherever the science leads, that's how we should be adjusting policy in our country. Do you agree? Thank you. Had one man clapping for me there in the back. Anyway. Oppression is a dastardly thing because it's easy for someone who has everything they need to oppress people who are barely hanging on. That's, that's what gets me fired up. It's not that we struggle with policy and, and struggle about how to figure out how to navigate something that's been new to you know, all, all of us. That, that's not the issue because many people, I think, we give them the benefit of the doubt. They did what they could and they did the best that they could. But once we know something, when politics and power start determining policy, that's where I have a a big struggle because I see what it does to people. And I could talk to you more about mental health and suicide rates and many other things that are going on. I believe that if we've learned anything from the COVID uh, virus, we should protect the most vulnerable among us and make sure you are very careful if you have some of those you know, issues in your life. But what's gone on needs to stop. We need, we need an adjustment, no doubt. Now, uh, as the Lord talks about drawing near to judgment, you can see the categories uh, that God cares about. And when Jesus arrived, he addressed the, the religious leaders of his day And he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They like respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They love the chief seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at banquets. But they devour widows' houses for the appearance and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. He said, watch out, beware 
of these religious leaders who devour widows' houses. And they do everything that they do for pretense because they love the praise of man more than the praise of God. Watch out. Be careful. And then right after that, this is Mark 12, 38 through 44, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury. And you know what he witnessed? People putting in offerings. And he saw a poor widow come up and put in two small copper coins, which amounted to a cent. And he called his disciples and said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, all of them. For they all put out out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty. She put in all that she owned and all that she had to live on. Now this is gonna become very relevant when we talk about the issue of giving and tithing. So the reason that Israel is being addressed, Malachi 3, 6, and that God hasn't wiped them out yet is one simple reason. I, the Lord, Malachi 3, 6, do not change. God is, this is God's immutability. If you're interested in a big word, one of the attributes of God is he is immutable. He does not change. He will always be God. He's always eternal. He's always omniscient. He's always omnipresent. He is who he is, and he will not change. And because he doesn't change, Malachi 3, 6, therefore, in light of that reality of his immutability, the sons of Jacob or Israel are not consumed. Why? Because he made a covenant with Abraham, and he made a covenant with Isaac, and he made a covenant with Jacob, and he made a covenant with uh, David and his household. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He keeps his loving kindness for a thousand generations. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger. That's why I'm still standing here. Amen? I would imagine that's why a few of you out there are not, have not been consumed, if you know what I'm saying. Because the Lord has been merciful And yeah, we've all had our bumps and bruises, but the Lord has been good to us and he's been patient with us. And Israel could say that. And God says, from the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes, seven. You've not kept them. You've been doing this all along. Ever since I I delivered you out of Egypt, you started whining and you haven't stopped. (laughs) Stop it! All the way throughout history, you've just recently returned from Babylonian captivity and still you won't return to me. Return, the Hebrew word shuv. Turn back, repent. Turn to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Here's a simple biblical equation, true in the New Testament as much in the old. If you turn to God, he will turn to you. If you draw near to him, He will draw near to you. All he's asking is that you turn your heart toward him. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus addresses seven churches. They are Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea, Smyrna, and Philadelphia. Five of the seven churches, Jesus Christ in the New Testament tells them, Oh, that was perfect timing. (laughs) Repent. The word repent, if you want a simple synonym, means 
return. Turn back. Do a 180. I was reading a commentary by J. Vernon McGee, and he said, may I say that repentance is largely for the church. What does an unbeliever need to turn back from? Well, he turns away from the world to Christ, so certainly we preach repentance and faith, no doubt. But do you know who repentance is largely for? Us. Prodigals. Christians. Whose hearts easily can go astray. Only two of the seven churches is not told to repent. Here's what Joel 2, verse verse 12. Actually, we'll go back to verse 11. Just write this down. Joel 2, 11 through 14 The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him even a grain offering or an libation for the Lord your God. Now, the Lord tells them, come back to me, and here's what they've been doing throughout the book. They do something like this. Well, how shall we return? Or what did we do wrong? <laughs> there's a bit of an attitude underlying the language here. And they've done this, I think there's, there's gonna be a total of seven times where God will say something corrective, and they will say, well, how or what? Or what do we do? Sounds all too familiar, doesn't it? God says, I want you to come back to me. Well, they say, how? Well, here's the answer. Will a man rob God? The imperfect verb could be translated. Could a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And the response from God in tithes and offerings. Now, I will tell you that Malachi 3, starting in verse 8 and going up to about verse 10, has been butchered by many a New Testament pastor because tithing is an old covenant system and it is not something for new covenant Christians. The audience being addressed in Malachi chapter 3 is the nation of Israel. And when God addresses the nation of Israel, he addresses them on the issue of giving. But he's addressed them on much more than that. So even though tithes and offerings are the subject of verse 8, they are not the main big picture of the problem of Israel. Jesus put it this way. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, your money, how you spend your money says a lot about you. And in the New Covenant uh, revelation of the Bible, Christians are stewards. A steward is managing someone else's resources. Where Israel was called to give three different tithes, and we'll talk about that in a second, which amounted to 23 and a third percent of their overall income. Christians are called to give Christ everything. Now, sometimes Christians say, should I give 10%? Sure. Sure you should. But you may want to give God more. You may 
have seasons of your life where you can't give that much, 10% isn't even the issue because the tithe, which means 10%, is not taught in the New Testament. And let me just give you a quick snapshot. There are people who say Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Well, he did it once. He did it when he was 80 years old. There's no record that he did it before that or after that. And he gave of the spoils of war, not an ongoing tithe that he brought into some uh, worship structure. So when people make the appeal to Abraham giving tithes to Melchizedek, it doesn't work, and it's not the system that was set up later. Now, there are people that will say that Jesus addressed the Pharisees and said, you tithe of the mint and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier measures of the law like justice and mercies. These you should have kept without uh, you know, uh, not doing the former. So he, is he teaching tithing? Well, to scribes and Pharisees still under the old covenant, he's saying, yeah, you should have tithed, but you should have done the weightier measures of the law. But there is absolutely not one scripture addressed to new covenant Christians that ever teaches the issue of tithing. Now, I'm bringing this up because there are some word faith teachers and perhaps I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, well-meaning pastors who have strong-armed modern Christians into giving income based upon a law that they are not under. I'll give you an example. There's a young man that attends this fellowship, and he grew up in a word-faith church where the tithe was regularly the topic of Sunday morning preaching, because usually what happens is these churches are trying to get people to give, give, give more. Some of you have been to places where they do five different offerings uh, on a Sunday morning. This is the offering for the Poor Widows Foundation. This is the offering for the Pastoral Golf Foundation. This is the, <laughs> that's kind of an inside joke. Anyway, and on and on it goes. And, every, and it seems like they don't preach the Bible, but they know Malachi 3 really, really well. And they'll put you under the law as quick as you could say, yikes. Right? They know these verses really well. And he said this to me. He said, Pastor Michael, I grew up feeling like if I didn't give 10% of my income, I was condemned. And when I got proper teaching on this and saw what God really said about this to my heart, I, feel, I felt like a burden was lifted off of my shoulders. Because the reason that you should give is not because someone coerced you into giving. You should give what you've purposed in your heart, 2 Corinthians 9, because God doesn't want you giving grudgingly. God loves a... Not a giver that's going, oh, I better, I better scrape up the 10% for this week because if I don't, I'm condemned. And I've heard some pastors, and here is where I will not give the benefit of the doubt, place their congregation under the Malachi curse if they didn't give 10%. And I would just say to that pastor, that is absolutely twisting the scripture to your own destruction and it's putting your people under a burden that Jesus Christ doesn't have them under. Because Jesus Christ, this is Galatians 3.13, became a curse for us. He took the curse of the law so that we wouldn't be under the curse any longer. He nailed to the, cur the curse to the cross. Believers cannot be placed under a curse 
Because Jesus was placed under the curse for us so that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him. How could we have the temerity to speak to an audience about tithing and place them under a curse when they are forgiven and redeemed in Jesus Christ? Do you see what I'm saying, brethren? And I want to show you, this is so important, you got to see this, Galatians chapter 3. Maybe we can put it up on the screen if you uh, don't want to turn there, but this is what it says, and this is great news. It says in Galatians 3.10, for as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. It is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith, 3.12. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus, and that's what every Christian is, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, and that's most of us non-Jews here, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through what? Through faith, not through works. Now look, I think it becomes evident, and and let me just show you one other passage while you're in Galatians. Go go to Galatians 6, and here's what it says. This is verse 6, Galatians 6, verse 6. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Mark that. That's especially important. (laughs) It's kind of a joke. Anyway, here's the point. You may have noticed if you've been at Living Truth for a while, we used to pass the bag. When COVID started, we stopped that, and we've just continued to make the box available for giving, and most, I think most people perhaps here give through the app. And do you know what God has done? In the last two years, we have not been in want for anything. You guys give. Now, I don't have to explain to most of you the basic concept of giving and stewardship, because I think most of you know the Bible pretty well and know it. And the reason that I think most of you give to whatever ministry you give to. It's because you believe in it. It's, to put it in the terms of Galatians 6.6, 6, you get taught the word of God and you want to support that ministry, amen? You think that ministry is getting the gospel out in many different ways and so you want to support it. And some of you support your local church and then you support missionaries and you maybe you help children around the world or whatever it is that you do. You give as you have purposed in your heart You seek the Lord, you open your heart, you open your hands, and you say, everything I have, Lord, as Acts 4.32 puts it, the church didn't consider as anything belonging to them. They, They just freely gave to one another in the early church. And here's the deal. You open your heart, you open your hands, and you say, everything I have is yours. If you let me keep nine tenths of it, I'm so happy with that. 10% is not a bad place to start or to aim for, but 10% is irrelevant to your giving. Just open your heart, open your hands, and you give to God what God's called you to give. There are some business people who have had successful businesses, go back to Malachi, and 
they have uh, dedicated the, the first fruits of their business and God has blessed them. Uh, many businesses, in fact, J.C. Penney was a business, uh, the original founder of J.C. Penney did this. Uh, and he dedicated his business to God and God blessed. Chick-fil-A, in and out we can, we can talk about a lot of different companies. And when, I think, here's the principle that I would share with you. If you sow sparingly, this is true in the New Testament, you will reap sparingly. If you sow generously, you will reap generously. So you have to determine what it is that you want to do with the resources that God has given you. Widening it out that it's not just about your money. It's about your time. It's about your gifts and talents. And it is about your treasure. It's often been said, time, talent, and treasure. Now you get to determine however many years the Lord gives you what you're going to do with that. What's most important to you? How are you going to invest your resources? Now, God certainly says, feed your family. Plan for, you know, your older years. Be a blessing to your kids. Do everything that you can do to be responsible, resourceful, uh, to work hard, to make the, the best amount of money that you can. Invest. Some of you are really good at that kind of stuff. But in the end, you're going to leave it for somebody else. You are. You ain't taking any of it with you. So store up treasures in heaven. Now you say, well, okay, if that's the case, Pastor Michael, then what is Malachi saying? Because verse 9 of Malachi 3 says, you're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Just know that the storehouse is the rooms of the temple. There is no temple today. So that there may be food in my house. Again, a reference to the temple. And God says, test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven, this has the language of Genesis 7, the floodgates of the sky were open. I will pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, until you have more than enough. Now, let me just park here and tell you, this is a beautiful promise. And I've ha I have an older believer that I've known for a lot of years tell me, that he started giving 10% and he felt like the Lord opened up the windows of heaven in his life with blessing. And I, I'm like, cool, that's great. If that's what the Lord laid on your heart, then praise God. But I will also say this. If you want to see the floodgates of heaven open in your life, if this country wants to see the floodgates of heaven open and a deluge come down, if we want to be blessed beyond what we could ask or, or imagine, if the church wants the blessing of God, if families and marriages want the blessing of God, what do you think God's going to ask of us? He's not going to ask you to write a check that fits the exact amount. God and I hope you've seen it by now. God wants your heart. The tithes and the offerings were simply a symptom of Israel's lack of worship and love of God. They were simply symptoms of a deeper disease. And whenever you peel back the Bible, you all realize that that's the one thing that God wants is you give me your heart. I, I don't want false worship with your mouth. 
I don't want you just thinking the rituals are going to do it. I don't want you to think the sacrifices are going to do it. I don't want you to think that it's just the writing of the check that's going to do it. I want you and I want all of you. And when I have all of you, the worship things will just simply be overflow. You'll want to give. Amen. Isn't it a blessing to give? It's more blessed to give than to receive. So you want to give to people because you want to bless them. You want to serve with your time, talent, and treasure. You see, when your heart is in love with God, everything's an overflow. Evangelism is an overflow. I don't have to twist your arm to evangelize. Do you know we have a groundswell, uh, kind of a, a cool thing happening here with evangelism? And do you know why it's happened? Because people just love Jesus and they want other people to know Jesus. We don't have to force it. We don't have to strong arm anybody into anything because if I strong arm you into it, we're in trouble. You do it as unto the Lord. Yeah, sometimes I just simply do things out of obedience and you know, my flesh follows, but, but you get what I'm saying. Now, what is going on with the tithing thing? I'm gonna give you a quick outline and uh, we'll, we're gonna spend like five more minutes together, but stick with me. Old Testament tithing before the cross, if you're taking notes, there were three tithes. Tithing was part of the Jewish law, mandatory for all Jews. Here's what Leviticus 27.32 says. And for every tenth part of the herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. Leviticus 27.32. The first tithe that the Jewish people gave was a tithe to, the, to support the care of the Levites, and those were the priests. They did not have an inheritance in Israel. They were descendants of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi only, is the only tribe among the Jews who did not own any land. They could not cultivate land, cultivate land or engage in any type of business. The Levite's job was to take care of the temple, first the tabernacle, then the temple, and minister to the spiritual needs of the Jewish people. So I, I think it's important that you turn to a few of these passages. So let's go there. The book of Numbers, chapter 18. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Let me just give you a quick outline of the three ties so you have it under your belt and you can see it for yourself. Numbers, chapter 18, verse I'm going to give you just some selected verses. 20 and 21 says this, Numbers 18, 20. The Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in the land, Aaron's that Levitical uh, line, nor any portion among them. I am your portion, Numbers 18, 20, and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. The sons to the sons of Levi, 21, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. Skip down to 24. That's the tabernacle. For the tithe of the sons of Israel, which they offer as an offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Skip down to verse 31. You may eat it anywhere, you and your households, for it is your compensation is the tithe, in return for your service in the tent of meeting. The tithe, the first tithe of three, was given for the Levites in a nation where the Levites had no ability to inherit land or work normal jobs. And so the nation's responsibility 
was to give so that the Levites would be taken care of. That's tithe number one. There is no tabernacle or temple, and there are no Levites right now. I mean, they, they exist, but you know what I'm saying. There's no Levitical priestly structure. So it doesn't apply to believers today. Now, the second tithe is in Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, chapter 14. All Jews were to use 10% of their resources, that's crops and herds, to support the national feasts and annual sacrifices in Israel. This was addition, in addition to the first tithe to support the Levites. Deuteronomy 14, 22. You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses. That will eventually be Jerusalem, where he establishes his name forever. The temple will eventually be erected there. David will uh, buy the land and so forth. That's future to this. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, in order that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So the second tithe is for the annual festivals in the place where God chooses. If the, if the distance is so great, so let's say you live far away from Jerusalem, for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you, when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So there's an adjustment that you can make. And then the third tithe, look at Deuteronomy chapter 14, the very end of the chapter 28 and 29, is a tithe for the poor. Namely, it is a tithe for the widow, the orphan, and the alien. Notice Deuteronomy 14, 28 says, at the end of every third year, this is the one tithe that's not an annual tithe, it's at the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. Three tithes in Israel, one for the Levites, second for the annual feast, third a tithe basically for the poor widow and orphan every three years. And what it comes down to, if you want to be under the law of Israel for tithing, you should be giving 23 and a third percent of your income. And people say, from the net or the gross? <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> but here we are calculating numbers again when you don't have to do that because you are not an Israelite under the law su su uh, supporting a Levitical line of priests, working in a tabernacle, bringing offerings into a storehouse. It doesn't apply to New Covenant Christians. Everybody with me? That's why when it's preached as if it were a command to New Testament Christians, it's just a sad mistake. Now, I think, again, 10% is a good target to start with, to work around. You guys get the idea. God promises to open the floodgates of heaven, and we'll finish it up if you turn back with me to Malachi 3. So I'll open the floodgates of heaven. If you'll just return to me with all your heart, the tithe, the offering, simply an expression, a symptom of the deeper problem. And when you do this, 
I'm going to open up the floodgates of heaven. I'm going to bless you beyond what you could ask or imagine, to quote Ephesians. And then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground because they were under a curse because cursings and blessings were laid out by God very early in Deuteronomy. If you do this, you'll be blessed, but curses will follow. It'll curse the land. It'll curse your oxen. It'll cause inflation in your land. It's kind of a joke. Anyway, but when you turn back to me, I will rebuke the devourer so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, your economy, nor your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And here's what will happen. And all the nations will call you, instead of cursed, what will they call you? Blessed. For you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. And people will look and say, Look at that nation of Israel, how blessed they are. And people of other nations will say, wow, look at the United States of America. Why is it that they are so blessed? Why is it that so many people want to come to this land? At least they used to. I know they still want to. And what will turn us back to God? What will open again the floodgates of heaven? We may not want to say it from the highest places of our nation, but I'll say it. Return to me, and I will return to you. You know, we're Americans, so I, I think I can make the parallel. It's not the direct context. But America has been blessed by God. We've sent out many missionaries around the world, and I will tell you that there are many peoples and nations very grateful for the United States of America. So I want to be careful to say that God has blessed us and we've had good leaders, not so good leaders, and everything in between. And the answer to what ails us is not going to be found in the political area. So let me clarify that. The answer is going to be found when the people of God at every level, whether you own a business, you're in politics, you're, you work in the church, is willing to say, we need the Lord. And we need to come back to the Lord. And watch that I might just open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that's more, more, more than enough. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the patience of your people as we've moved through many scriptures together. We cry out to you for America. We ask for her by name. Man, the world is uh, reeling in so many different areas, Father. Uh, this last couple of years has been such a challenge Would you purify your people? We want to be pure before you. We want to have pure hands and clean hearts. And that can't be produced in our own righteousness, Lord. We, we know that. <clears throat> it comes through the work of the gospel, but it also does come through a surrendered life. Would you help me, Lord, to draw closer to you, to know you better? In 2022, to know you better to know freedom, true freedom more, to know um, the beauty of knowing the God that made me, to know his ways, to know the joy of our salvation, to experience a life of overflow where the windows of heaven do open up and deluge and overflow into and out of my life. I know that's what we all desire. 
So whatever the Lord may be speaking to you tonight, whatever you may need to lay down at his feet, if you've never given your heart to him for the first time and trusted in Christ and know that he took the curse of the law for you so you, you wouldn't have to be condemned by the Ten Commandments, you could be free, truly free. Trust in his death on the cross, his resurrection. More than that, trust in him. He's the one that saves. He is gracious. He's patient. He loves you so much he died on the cross for you. Turn to him and be saved. And if you're a wayward believer, return to him and he will return to you. And for all of us, Father, we just want to turn our hearts back to you. 